be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. On this podcast, I was absolutely delighted to catch up with Doug Lemoff, who is an extremely busy man. So this is an introduction before I jump straight into the questions with Doug, because I wanted to get as much out of him as possible. So who is Doug? He is the mastermind behind one of the go-to teacher's books, Teach Like a Champion. He's also a very popular speaker course leader and blogger in the teaching world, both in the US and in the UK and across the world, of course. His summary of how he develops his works comes from an excellent introduction to his blog. It's called Welcome to Field Notes. Uh, and he says, I've named this blog to emphasize the idea that just about everything in my books is someone else's brilliant idea. My idea was just to write it down. I like the role of the observer and think there's a lot of power in it. Think about it. There isn't a problem in teaching or learning that someone somewhere hasn't solved. We just need to find them and take some field notes. Of course, he's very modest and it takes an enormous amount of expertise and reflection to identify these ideas and then turn them into the most relevant tools for teaching and coaching today. Now, Doug tells me that though he was really um, more interested in soccer before because his son uh, was a very good soccer player, uh, his son's recently at university turned to rugby, so he is uh, more attuned to the game of rugby, but I think the lessons will cut across many different sports, and he also references his daughter's um, playing netball. Uh, he did watch um, a recent European Cup game as he was training, so he enjoys the game, but I think most of all, what I'm going to get out of this, or what I did get out of it, because this is the introduction after the actual event was the enormous amount of ways to encourage your players and ask the right questions at the right time know when to step in and step out anyway enough of my introduction let's get on with the podcast so here i am uh, speaking to doug and doug is in cloudy new york and i'm in cloudy wales and <laughs> i'm delighted to have him along board uh, you've heard a great introduction to all the wonderful things he does so i'm going to jump straight in doug and ask the first question which is what are the differences you see between coaching on the field and mm -hmm. teaching in the classroom well i'm sure the differences are relatively are, are relatively obvious um there's a physical component to coaching on the field. Uh, but I think the similarities are what's most fascinating, which is so much of what we're trying to accomplish on the field is the craft of teaching. But people are asked to do it often with very little, very little guidance, very little background on how do I, do, how, how the challenges of coaching are essentially the challenges of teaching. How do I know whether people have learned what I've taught them? How do I speak to them in a way that motivates them? How do I communicate clearly? How do I uh, ensure that ideas don't go in one ear and out the other and are <laughs> transmitted to long-term memory? And I think that, you know, I know that you're both an, an economics teacher and, and, a, and a rugby coach, and I think that those, those struggles are, uh, are universal to anyone who does, does either of those jobs. Um, 
So maybe the primary difference is that teachers often have conversations about these learning challenges and coaches less often. Uh, they're thrown into duty because they were great at the game and they love the game, but no one ever talks to them about how do I know they're actually learning what I'm talking about. So uh, you're, you're talking about committing to long-term memory mm, yeah. and sports is, uh, you've obviously got to take in some tactical information and some mm. knowledge in terms of what goes into the brain. Uh, and I know there's no such thing as muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Um, however, h- how do you sort of see uh, the difference there that you're trying to help players do things with their body uh, as yeah. opposed to do things with their mind? <laughs> or with both their, their body and their minds. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I went to, uh, I did a, a short workshop a year or two ago in New Zealand for some from coaches at the New Zealand Rugby Federation. And the guy before me was a cognitive scientist. And the first thing he said was that cognitive science has learned more in the last 15 years than they did in the last 300 years combined. And one of the things we've learned most about, I think is working memory and the power of working memory. Uh, and its limitations. So working, so working memory is your capacity to, uh, to problem solve and to do critical thinking and to assess the situation and make a decision. And it's incredibly powerful, but it's incredibly limited. And it's very easily overloaded. And so I think w- what that means is that um, if it's overloaded, you re- by one thing, you reduce its ability to do other things. So if I'm trying to keep an idea in my head, I'm trying to think about playing wider, or I'm trying to think about my footwork actively, it causes other things to degrade. For example, perception, which is critical to decision-making. An example from the world of driving might be if you try to take a right turn across traffic, uh, speaking about your country, by the way, it would be a left turn in our our country. You try to take a right turn across traffic while adjusting the climate control system on your car, the stereo on your car, you're 10 times more likely to have an accident because by having to concentrate on that task, your perceptive ability is degraded. Your ability to read the rate of the oncoming car reduces. And so the way around limits on working memory is long-term memory. If we can get the knowledge of both action and thought that players have into their long-term memory, then they can use it without degrading perception. But if we're trying to get them to think actively about some tactical or technical aspect of their performance while they're playing, it's like it's going to degrade other aspects of their performance. So getting things in long-term memory is, I think, a hugely underrated aspect of, of both teaching and coaching um, that we've recently come to recognize. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's not automatic. It's easier said than done. Um, <laughs> And I was just talking to a group of coaches from a professional uh, academy of one of the professional clubs, professional soccer clubs here in the U.S. And we're talking about the power of retrieval practice, that there's almost nothing you can learn and put into long-term memory in a single iteration or even in a week. And that's interesting because almost every club plans training sessions in one-week intervals because they're period, they're worrying about their periodization of the, of training loads anyway. And so they map out the week according to when they want a heavy load for training and when they want a light load. And then they throw in the, oh, and here's, here's the topic that we'll talk about tactically, or they're planning a topic that will help them in the match on Saturday. And so they they may get a bump for the match on Saturday, but players are unlikely to retain information for the long run. So if you're putting together, so we, we can use a general thing of say passing, 
uh, which basketball, rugby, soccer, and many others, hockey, and many other sports. So if you were planning out your season and you said, um, this week we're going to do passing uh, and one element of it, You're, you're so saying, and I, I mean, this is, I understand this as well, that by the end of the week, they won't have learnt passing. They will have done some training which will include some passing. What, what do you suggest to coaches to try and make that process more effective? Yeah, I think the trickiest thing is that um, what players are able to do at the end of the week in terms of passing, they, will, they may be very successful, and you may say, well, they, you know, they really got it. But as soon as they walk off the field, they will begin to forget. And forgetting is forgetting is a ruthless and tireless enemy. And by the next day, they will remember a fraction of what they appeared to be able to do the day before. And when the match day rolls around three days later, you will at halftime be shouting at them, I thought we talked about passing all week. Uh, because their competency at the end, at the end of, of training is an illusion. So I think that um, you can actually look this up on the, on the internet. Um, forgetting curves are fascinating. They actually map how quickly people forget things. Uh, and you and I and everyone listening to this has forgotten almost everything we've learned in our lives. If you doubt me, have children wait 15 years and try and help them with their history, maths, or, 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 or science homework. I, I mean, I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. We've forgotten almost everything we've learned in our lives because we don't do retrieval practice, which is coming back to an idea after a period of forgetting. So if I wanted players to master their passing for the long term, so I didn't have to come back to it and say, guys, I thought we'd talk about passing. You've forgotten everything we learned about passing. I would introduce it during one week, say, maybe I'd introduce it on Monday, come back to it on Wednesday, then go on to a different topic on Friday and come back to it as they've begun to forget it. They've been distracting by the new topics that we're talking about. We're talking about defending or whatever it is. And I come back to it on Wednesday when players have to struggle more to remember it. And the, the, the deliberate difficulty that I introduced there, the, the additional struggle in trying to remember it causes them to encode the memory better. And then I would want to come back to it again a few days later, maybe a slightly longer interval this time. I think the data on forgetting suggests that if I gradually increase the intervals between retrieval, which is coming back to something that I previously learned to, to relearn it, um, it's encoded even better. So that would imply that I would I might want to plan out passing over, let's say, a four to six week unit, in which I do it. We do it, you know, three or four times intensively to really get the concept down in the first few days, but then I come back to it two days later and three days later, then four days later to, uh, and it, and it's that latter process of coming back to it after forgetting that will drive it into long-term memory. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a whole session on passing. It could be that I, in the midst of a session on defending, I say, let's pause. We've won the ball. Let's pro- let's work on our passing. What are the things we need to remember? What are the, um, what do we need to know about spacing? Great. Let's run through, let's run through five or six iterations from the breakdown of our passing great back to defending and just that act of having to recall it all the detail all the into memory uh increases the likelihood the players will actually remember it so i like that idea that uh, you might give them a, a surprise package in the middle right we're doing this uh, we're doing yeah. this technique and all oh, right we're sorry i'm just going to jump over and we're going to do uh, uh, an exercise activity drill whatever you want to call it that we did two weeks ago and let's mm-hmm. see how you get on with that now this then sort of leads us into my my next question is the sort of tactics you then use. So we have uh, we've designed our our season to uh, jump in and jump out of techniques to 
work on their retrieval practice when they're forgetting to then suddenly help them remember. So you, you've got a huge array of classroom tactics with some, with mm-hmm. some um, sweet names next to them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'd really like to sort of explore a couple of them. One of the ones which sure. comes up over and over again is cold calling. So mm-hmm. can you just explain what that is and then let's see what that looks like maybe in a sporting context. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for asking. Cold calling is calling on a student whether or not they've offered to tell you the answer. Uh, and it, it's powerful because uh, it's for a couple of reasons. One, it allows you to hold players accountable uh, and manage their attention and focus. Questioning is such an important part of coaching. We ask players questions to make sure that they understand and can think about the things that we ask them to do. So typically in a stoppage of practice, I might say, we're building out of the back. I'll just use a soccer example here. Pause. Mm-hmm. What do we need to think about doing? What do you notice about where the offense is positioned? What does that, what, what does that mean you should do? If only one or two players are thinking about the answer to those questions in their head, or if the one or two most verbal players on my team shout out the first thing they can think of when I ask questions, then it doesn't really matter how good my questions are because 80% of the players on my team are not answering them and they're not thinking deeply about them. And so cold calling allows me to say, pause, we're building out of the back, we're under pressure. Devin, where should the number six be? Let's assume that Devin is the number six. Where Devin is the number eight, and he needs to know where, he needs to know where the number where the number six is. Suddenly, I send the message that you don't get to when you walk on the field. You don't get to choose whether you want to answer the questions that the game asks of you. You have to be ready always. You have to be listening and attentive, and as mentally locked in as you are physically. Um, and so. Uh, cold call is one of the most effective ways that I can do that. But it's also important because it allows me to tackle, I think, one of the other just fundamental challenges of teaching, which is checking for understanding. The great American basketball coach, John Wooden, encapsulated this idea when he said, teaching is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And um, we are constantly faced with these challenges, right? I know that I talked about building out of the back for, for three straight days this week. And then on Saturday, we don't do it. And so um, ideally, I would know on Wednesday that we're not, that we're, I would realize on Wednesday that we're not really mastering building out of the back as opposed to having to wait for the match to realize it. Uh, and so one of the, if, if when I ask questions, I rely on the players who offer to tell me whether they understand, I will always get a false sample. I'll always get this, the players who are more like who, who think they know are more likely to volunteer to tell me and the players who have no idea where they're supposed to be <laughs> tactically are going to silently hide and I will never understand how much they don't know. But if I can cold call and say, great, Dan, where should the number six be? Great, Robert, where should the number eight be? Uh, then I can, I can get a better statistical sample of what my players know and don't know and therefore unearth it's a gift to understand <laughs> to understand what players don't understand on Wednesday, and I can unearth it more quickly and more effectively on Wednesday, as opposed to waiting for their performance to tell me. So I think those are two reasons why cold call is, is so powerful. So I, and we can see how effective that is now. Of course, you asked Devon, and Devon yeah. um, isn't used to answering the questions. Yeah. Um, and he does one of two things. One, he clearly doesn't know and says, I don't know. Or he yeah. comes up which is so ridiculous that uh, 
if you said it was ridiculous, you'd probably uh, shatter his uh, little, little <laughs> confidence he had in the first place. So let's, let's go yeah. first with he, he, um, he doesn't know the answer. How, yeah. how do you deal with that? Right. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to, I want to build what I call a culture of error where players feel safe telling me that they don't know. So the first thing I would probably say is good. I'm glad, I'm glad you told me that. I'm glad to know that you don't know. Uh, <laughs> brilliant, it's brilliant. Be I, lo- I love that. So you would say, I'm glad you don't know. I love that. Well, I'm not saying I'm glad you don't know, but I'm glad to know that you don't know. A math uh, teacher that I love said, know. yeah. All right, okay, yeah. Um, uh, a math teacher that I love said this in a lesson that I was videotaping. I'm so glad I saw that mistake. It's going to help me to help you. Which basically what, the, it, it doesn't pretend that there's not a mistake, right? It calls it a mistake. I'm so glad to know that you don't, I'm really glad to know that you don't know because it's going to make us better on Saturday or I'd rather know now than on Saturday or because if, uh, because it's important and it's tricky. And so let's go through it one more time. Let's talk about it. So what I want to do is I want to take the defensiveness and the blame out of the equation. When I shout at players, how can you not know where you're supposed to be, Devin? We've been working on this for three days. Um, I do a couple of things right now. Now there's a disincentive for Devin to reveal to me his lack of understanding. And it's going to be 10 times harder for me to understand the gaps between I taught it and they learned it. And I've introduced a whole set of variables to Devin. Does he shout at Dan the way that, the same way that he shouts at me? Does he sound like my father when he shouts at me? Why is he always shouting at me? Uh, is he not going to play me on Saturday because he's shouting at me? And all those things distract Devin from the fact that he needs to be 10 yards deeper and three yards wider. And so I think that when we, if we can build this culture of error with like non-defensiveness about making mistakes, I'm really glad to know that. doesn't matter whose fault it is. I'm going to go back and reteach it. Uh, that's, that's what I want to have happen. So I want to make players comfortable revealing their mistakes to me. Mm. It doesn't mean I can't make them feel responsible. I could say to Devin, I'm really glad to know that because by Saturday, we absolutely have to know what our positions are going to be. So let's go through it again. And afterwards, Devin, I'm going to ask you, make sure you're ready to answer. If there's anything you don't understand, now's the time to ask. Got it? Good. (laughs) So I I think I can still do accountability Mm. with a culture of error. But when players don't know, um, it's a gift to know because it tells me that I have to change my teaching. So now now, uh, he has actually given you an answer, but it's well off. Um, right. So how are you going to deal with that? Right. I could, I could, I think there are a variety of things I could say and kind of like, I'm trying to read like there are a variety of different attitudes Devin could have. Like he could say something that he thinks is like hilarious. Ha ha ha. Yeah, yeah. You know, on the, on the, uh, on the touchline coach, um, or he could earnestly answer and just be completely off the mark. So again, I'm thinking about culture of error. If it's the latter, I might say, I can see why you might say that, but that's actually wrong here. So, let's go through again and let's study what the right answer would be. Or a lot of people, a lot of people think that, but it's actually not true. Um, or when I, you know, there were times when I was a player when I thought that that was the right answer, but it's actually wrong here. So let's go back and let's study why it's actually going to help us to understand it. So again, I want to, I want to, I want to try to build players interest in and understanding of the value of studying their mistakes as much as I can, because studying our mistakes is one of the tools that we use to learn. Um, if Devin's sort of hamming around a little bit on the touchline coach, I'd say, you know, I, I would, this to me is a difference between like a mistake and a sin, which is like you're messing around in practice. And I'd be like, I think, you know, it's not the touchline. I'm going to tell you again. And this time, make sure that you're listening or, you know, um, so 
I, I, I might do a little bit more of like a yeah. culture check there. Are, are you furrowing your brow when you're saying that and you just... A uh, little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah just, uh, but, I, but I think the interesting thing is that like, it's important to be able to distinguish between when an athlete is um, violating the norms of the, of the team being silly and not taking learning seriously and when they're genuinely confused and often they use uh, the former to cover for the latter. And so I think um, I have to be careful about rushing to judge. And my, my first instinct is going to be like, I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know that you don't understand. Um, I appreciate you're making light of it, but let's get, you know, but we need to deal with this seriously. We have to understand this or anyone who's going to play on Saturday has to understand this. Maybe that would be a subtle way that I would say like, you know, I have some responsibility to reteach it here and you have some responsibility to make sure you learn it. But I think rush, like one of the things that happens when gaps emerge between I taught it and they learned it is coaches or teachers blame learners. They blame athletes, kids that they don't care. They're not paying attention. They don't want it. Not like we wanted it when we were 18. Right. Of course. And you go to the, uh, uh, and that has, can have really negative effects on team culture. And of course the players are doing the same thing, right? Uh, when they get blamed for not knowing how to things, do things that they don't know how to do, right? Uh, if we haven't been clear with them about it, uh, they start to lose faith in the endeavor of getting better at being taught and the efficacy of the coach. And so, um, tweaking with the blame and saying, I'm glad to know that. Let's go through it again. Well, you know, let's make sure we all understand it. Uh, in some ways, over the long run, helps me ensure my players' faith in the in the endeavor of learning. Which is that's what we're all about. Yeah. So um, one of the things that you've then said in when when someone gives you the answer. So let's sort of take the middle ground. He's yeah. he's not he, he he knows an answer. It's not yeah. ridiculous. It's yeah. almost right. Now you've yeah. talked uh, in a previous blog about teachers sometimes rounding up answers. Mm-hmm. Can you can you explain what that means? Why we have to be aware of it, and how we avoid sort of falling into the trap of rounding up when we shouldn't. Rounding up is when a student gives a the glimmer of a right answer, a partial right answer, and the teacher then rephrases what the student said and adds, adds a lot of information. So I'll just give you a, I was an English teacher, so give me an English answer and then I'll try and translate it into sports. Right. Uh, what's the relationship like between the Capulets and the Montagues? Dan, they don't like each other. And then when I round up, I say to the class, right, Dan said that the Montagues and the Capulets hate each other and they've been feuding for generations. Right. So that's actually not what you said. My answer was much better than yours. I added all the important detail. Um, but I've convinced you that you know more than you do. Uh, and I've done all the cognitive work of providing the important part of the, of the answer. And so this is one of those challenges of teaching, which is I want to validate and appreciate the effort that the student has given, but I want the students to come up with a full answer. So I might say some. So first of all, in, in the form of my question, I might anticipate the fact that I'm going to get an incomplete answer. And I can say, who can get us started talking about the relationship between the Capulets and the Monahues? Dan? And so just that who can get a start implies that if I say that's a good start, but there's more to it, or let's, let's continue to develop that idea because there's some good thinking there, but, but the full answer has more. Then uh, it's not a surprise. It doesn't seem feel like a judgment. But then I would say, yes, it, involve, uh, yes, it involves 
tension between the families who can tell us more, who can develop it more. And then I want to push back on students or uh, Dan said, Dan, that's part of it. But can you tell me more about the relationship? How long, uh, how long is the situation persisted? Right. So then I push the, the thinking back to students. Um, so if I'm, I'm in a sporting situation and I say, what do we need to think about when we're building out of the back? We need to get wide. Wide is important, but there's more to it than that. What else do I need? What are the outside, what else do the outside backs need to be thinking about? Who needs to get wide, right? Then, um, then I can. Uh, I, I want to be careful about overestimating how much students know and giving them credit and thinking that they have a complete answer when they don't. But I think that it happens all the time. I get even, even you know the, the slightest soundings. I mean, in part because I'm always in a rush, right? I have more that I want to do, and so I get the hint of a right answer, and it's just so easy to drop in. The like, yeah, here. Here's, and here's a little bit more. But in the end, if, if the students are going to, send, under, going to understand that the students have to do the work. So that's sometimes the problem with questioning is that you feel that you can draw everything out by asking a question after a question after a question. Yeah. And my, my sense is that sometimes you've actually got to uh, get out the knowledge gun and fire a few shots. And uh, you, you, you're not reaching for the gun fast enough uh, yeah. because, as you say, you're in a rush. But you're also thinking, uh, I'm going to, the, the students will know. Eventually, I'll ask a question where they'll have a light bulb, bulb moment. But sometimes you have to say, right, well, the, te- in the technical term here is, or the technique you need to use is, yeah. or here are some techniques. So is there a, a subtle way of shooting the bullet? Or do you have to actually say, right, I'm going to have to give you some knowledge now? I think... <laughs> The role of knowledge in higher order thinking, of which I would say, which is what the goal of questioning is to uh, elicit in students, is vastly underestimated, both in schools and on the training ground. There is a myth that people can engage in higher order thinking about things that they don't know anything about, and it's, it's just not true you can't think deeply about something you don't have any knowledge about. So background knowledge, a lot of teachers think that background knowledge is the opposite of higher order thinking. And they will say things like, why should we teach facts when the kids can Google anything? We should teach higher order thinking. And the answer to that is because you can't think, you can't have higher order thinking about something you don't know anything about. And the more you know about it, the more deeply you can think about it. So if I translate that to a sports setting, background knowledge is hugely important. And if I want my question to be good, players should know in advance um, what is our game model? What are the principles of play so that I can draw on them? And even, I would say, um, shared vocabulary is critically, critically important. My daughter plays football. Um, she's in a really good club. And last year, her coach talked about receiving the ball side on. And this year, her coach talks about receiving the ball on the half turn. Those are both exactly the same thing. They're just using a different term for it. And so... Um, but I would suspect that she does not associate everything that she's learned about receiving on the half turn with everything that she learned about receiving side on. And so she can't draw on that knowledge because vocabulary is inconsistent across the club. So two things that I would want to do if, if I, if I believe in questioning as a, as a methodology is I want to do my best to standardize the vocabulary that coaches use from age group to age group to age group so that players associate and draw on their knowledge in a consistent way. And then I want players to know in advance, what are the, like, so if I pause, uh, 
Dan has the ball under pressure in the midfield. What are what are the principles? What are the what are the, what are the, what are the things that we want to do when we receive the ball under pressure in the midfield? Um, I think people, is, if you think about the types of questions that you ask, people assume that a, a question, um, a, that discovery is the highest form of question. But oftentimes, the problem solving that we want to do is we know roughly what the answer is. We don't want players to invent a new solution to um, having the ball under pressure and midfield. We know what the two or three responses is. The problem solving is how do I do it here in this situation? And so my question can be like, great, what do we want to accomplish here? We want to get the ball wide. Great. How do we do? Look around you. What do you see? What's going to be challenging about getting it wide here? Uh, yes, we're under pressure and there are three players in the passing lanes. Good. And so what do we have to do to overcome that? That's still problem solving. And the other thing that I would say about questioning, maybe this is to me the most overlooked form of effective question. When I want to ask about decisions, I should ask about perception because um, in games played at speed, often the, the connection between perception and action is direct and it bypasses conscious decision making. And so the question, what do you see, is often just as important as what should you do. Um, because I don't know what I should do unless I perceive it. And when players make bad decisions, it's often because they failed to see the they failed to perceive the alternatives. So I was, watch I was watching football practice, a soccer practice last night, and the coach was talking about two defenders not two defenders supporting each other by maintaining depth. And when he stopped them, he would say, uh, "Look at yourselves. Are you?" Uh, uh, Steph, you're deep, and Katie, you're, you're uh, or you two, you're both even. What should you do? And when he identified that problem, they were perfectly able to say, Katie should be farther forward and Steph should maintain depth. But that's very different from saying, pause, what do you notice? And having them have to notice that they were even and then solve the problem, right? The perception, the, the problem is not that they don't know what to do. The problem is that they can't perceive the situation. So I think another form of question that is, extremely powerful the question that coaches often overlook is pause what do you see where should your eyes go what should you be looking at to make this decision but that is often as important as what should you do yeah. especially in a game like rugby that happens fast and where you know reading the reading the cues and, and knowing where your eyes go is in many ways the definition of expertise there's this fascinating video out there on the internet of, of cristiano ronaldo um with a pair of vision tracking glasses on um and one of the things that they do is they have another player strike a corner kick to him but they turn off the lights just to see striking the corner kick and cristiano ronaldo is still able to head the ball into the back of the net in the dark and the reason he's doing he's able to do that is because he's reading the perceptive cues of the player who's about to strike the ball before he strikes it right hit the his the ability to look at the right things and to understand them is, in many cases, expertise. Uh, I just think we failed to think about it that way. Like it's like a baseball player trying to strike. A, yes. A ball. I mean, it's just absolutely impossible. I mean, the, the the similarities obviously with cricket as well. There's no way that you're going to make a decision when the ball's halfway towards you. You've made a decision based on uh, the, the the shape of the, the the hand and all all sorts of things. So I mean that's uh, yeah. that's a fascinating area itself. So I want to just uh, uh, yeah. just ask another one. Is uh, talking about uh, talk getting the players to be more interactive with themselves. Now yeah. uh, one of the things uh, 
and again, I think you you, you emphasise this all the time. The, these terms are you you're using these terms to uh, pick up on things that you've observed in classrooms and on sports fields, which things which work effectively. <clears throat> Uh, so another term that you use, which works effectively, is turn and teach. So just um, how does that work um, and why does it work? Yeah. So um, there's a great video. I don't know if you you have a chance to paste it in somewhere, uh, but it's uh, a coach named James Beeston, who yep. I know we've I know talked about, where um, they've just been working on up, back, and through passing patterns for 15 minutes, and he pauses them. He says, great. We've been working on that back and up, back and through. What are some game situations in which we might apply this? In a typical coaching session, you know, maybe like the most verbal player says, calls out an answer. But James says, turn and talk with, your, with the player next to you, 30 seconds, then I'll ask you what you came up with. And in that moment, a couple of things happen. One, for every player on the team is answering the question question as opposed to just one and so like the, the ratio of who's of how many athletes are thinking about the question you know just got multiplied by 10 and for players who are a little bit reluctant to talk who may be the players who most need to talk um, they're rehearsing an answer and getting comfortable with an answer and so that if, if James cold calls them coming out of the turn and talk and says great Mateo what did you talk about suddenly I can bring more players safely into into the the conversation but also if my goal is in group invasion games like basketball hockey rugby soccer players have to communicate they have to talk to each other during during the game and we tell them all the time i hope if there's one most consistent piece of feedback that i hear during football practices is like talk guys you have to communicate but we sometimes forget that the other the other half of the equation is listening. <laughs> if everyone's talking and no one is listening, you have the American political process, and we don't want that. So, um, so it's important to think about how I socialize listening as a coach on the field. So, turn and talk. If I coming out of the turn and talk, I say, "Great, Matteo, what did you and what did you and Danella talk about?" Right? Then all of a sudden, Matteo has to talk about what Danilo said, and he has to be listening. Has to be listening as hard as he's. Talking. Or if I cold call Mateo and say, what did you talk about? And then when Mateo's done, I say, great, Larry, what do you think about Mateo? what Mateo just said? Then I'm socializing Larry that when Mateo is talking, it's really important you're accountable for listening to what he says. Um, and so uh, if I want players to communicate on the field, I have to make it a habit. If I want to communicate effectively on the field during games, I have to make it a habit during um, during training, and I think turn and talk is a great. So it's a great way to increase participation ratio and the level and the amount of thinking, and also to socialize peer-to-peer communication with athletes. I have another. There's another video on my uh, on my blog somewhere of a coach named Steve Freeman who said they uh, players are doing an activity. He divides the players. It's the orange team against the black team, and he divides them up. And he says, you know, orange is on offense, black is on defense. And he, he says, split up into groups, spend 30 seconds talking about what you need to improve on tactically to solve this problem, go, right? And so then they're practicing doing exactly what he wants them to do in the game, which is to problem solve as a group. Then he comes back together and he says, great, orange team, what did you talk about? David, you're first, right? And so, um, again, there are just lots and lots of opportunities for players to practice communicating productively as opposed to, say, loudly or, <laughs> or selfishly during the match. 
So I, I jumped. Uh, I jumped ahead because I said turn and teach. So you turn, turn, turn and talk. So that's uh, yeah. feeding back. So, uh, but the other one. So that uh, gives a very clear way of the players working together. Now turn and teach is where you might give a chance for a player to um, show that they understand what they're doing and <laughs> teach the other player. So uh, th- that that's another great. But so I don't want to concentrate on that one so much. Is I want to go back a couple of steps now. Um, another thing that you you say is that the the learners, the the players, the athletes, the, the kids in the classroom, they need to understand why you're saying these things. And you give an example of maybe I think you call it rollout, where you say, mm-hmm. right, this is how we turn and talk, and you actually yeah. demonstrate what they've got to do to make it work effectively. So you right. just don't say it, and they the kids randomly turn around. So just what what how does you obviously I, it's quite clear how you'd introduce cold calling. How would yeah. you introduce and what's the best things that the kids can do when they turn and talk? Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, this is a, this is a great question because um, it's really a procedure that it's something I want to do over and over again. And the more often I do it, the more I want to make sure that we have a, we have a way of doing it and I've taught the players to do it in a productive way. So, before I do it the first time, I'm going to call the players in and say, during training today, uh, I'm going to be asking you questions. And when we're on the field together, everyone needs to be thinking. We need to be engaged, as engaged mentally as we are physically, if we're going to overcome the kind of opponents we need to play this year. So if I ask you a question and I say, turn and talk, it means you turn and talk to one of your partners. And I want you to think as deeply as you can about the question that I'm asking and push yourself to understand its application and listen carefully to what your teammate is saying so that you're engaging the idea and you're mentally focused, right? If we did a passing drill and only one person was passing, it would be much less effective than if we did a passing drill and everyone was passing the ball. It's the same with the thinking. So that's what I'll expect you. Let's practice it right now. Uh, what's the most important thing to do when we turn it off, right? Uh, and then I would, again, like cold call coming out of it. But that allows me to explain to players what the purpose of the endeavor is so that they do it successfully and they see what it has to do with their learning and to install it as a system and a habit that then I can draw on over and over again as productively as a coach like James does. Now, uh, with the uh, the turn and talk uh, in the classroom videos I've seen, you're quite clear on the body language that the... People, uh, the kids are doing, and also when a player gives an answer, again, you're quite clear on the body language. Can you just very briefly say what sort of body language are you rolling out with the players? Sure. Um, the most important thing to me is eye contact, which is when you turn and talk with someone, you turn, you turn and face them, and you look at them, which one socializes you to listen carefully and helps build attentive behaviors, but also says to your partner. I care what you're saying right now. Um, No one in their right mind shares uh, their true thoughts, their deep thinking, something they're not sure might be right, but that's really important to rehearse to someone to the back of someone else's head or to someone who looks like they don't give a damn. And so like, you know, the, the, uh, the first element of body language is I turn and face my partner. We look at each other and I say to them with my body language, what you're about to say to me, I care. You're my teammate. What you're saying to me matters. And then I get quality speaking. And if people don't understand that and one guy is half facing another guy and uh, I'm expecting him to share something that matters, it's just not going to happen. 
And so that might even be part of my role. I might explain to you, one of the things that I'm going to ask you to do when you turn it off is to make sure there's eye contact between you. First of all, we're going to be looking at each other, trying to, trying to understand each other constantly throughout the game. But second, it shows, it shows your teammate their ideas matter. And that's one of the most important parts of, of being a teammate and will help you listen carefully. Try it right now. Go. Turn it off. Something like that. Oh, well, Doug, brilliant. And I've got a, a bunch of more questions to ask you, but I know that uh, you're an extremely busy man. But I, just before uh, we, we finish up, if, and I'm sure people will want to be accessing uh, all this information, they should obviously be going out and getting uh, Teach Like a Champion. I think it's version 2.0 at the moment. That That's right. Like that no, could I'm, be I'm struggling to write 3.0 <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah. yeah. So that would be the book. So where would they where would they go to to find out more information and dig deeper into some of the things that uh, you've been talking about? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I, um, I have a, a blog that I, uh, that I write on our on our website, it's teachakachampion.com backslash backslash blog. Uh, and I just try and share things that I'm learning because I'm, uh, I'm lucky that I constantly get to learn from teachers and coaches. So uh, some of the, the James Beeson videos that we talked about are up there with some discussion of them. I'll probably post something about the football practice that I watched last night and the math lesson that I saw earlier this week. So I try and post a couple times a week and just share new things that I'm realizing from studying coaches and teachers. And, um, uh, so that's great a great place uh, I'm also on, out there on Twitter uh, Doug underscore Lamov and um, you know I love hearing from other teachers and coaches so please be in touch yeah well obviously I'll put those links at, uh, on the in, the in the teacher notes or not the teacher notes in the uh, podcast notes I'm, I'm in a different world there in, uh, in the podcast notes Doug this has been absolutely brilliant I, w- I didn't realise uh, before the pod uh, we were talking and um, your son has taken up rugby just recently mm-hmm. after playing soccer to uh, to a good level and uh, it's been great to know that you are uh, coming over the dark side of rugby a bit more <laughs> but uh, I think the most important thing is that yeah. these are universal situations and it was very interesting that uh, there's a lot of translation from the classroom onto the field uh, but uh, thank you very much for your time uh, and um, your insight I, I thoroughly enjoyed it people probably hear me sniggering away uh, thinking oh yeah that makes sense why didn't I do that uh, do that before or uh, why why haven't I done more of that so thanks very much Doug for your time oh, it's been my, my pleasure thanks for thanks for inviting me on and uh Let's shoot again sometime. Yeah, definitely. So uh, thanks uh, thanks again to Doug. Uh, for everyone uh, who's been listening in, this is a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. Go over to the rugbycoachweekly.net website, click on the podcast button to listen to this podcast and many more. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.